0: Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn so that in today's accelerated world we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, Learning Specialist Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Everyone's brain is wired differently, some more different than others, but none are the same. Understanding these differences, their strengths and challenges are important to realize our full potential, learn better and work together. Sienna Castellon is an 18-year-old neurodiversity advocate and best-selling author of the wonderful book titled The Spectrum Girl Survival Guide, How to Grow Up Awesome and Autistic. At the age of 12, Sienna was diagnosed as autistic, dyslexic, dyspraxic, and with ADHD. As she searched for information to better understand these labels, she realized that the information she was looking for did not exist. This inspired her to set up a mentoring website for other people like her to give practical tips and advice on how to navigate a world along neurotypical lines. Siena has gone on to have many great achievements that have helped and supported countless individuals. She launched Neurodiversity Celebration Week, an international campaign that aims to challenge negative perceptions and stereotypes about autism and learning differences by encouraging schools to flip the narrative, from focusing on the challenges of being neurodivergent to focusing on the strengths and talents. Over 760 schools and over half a million students from around the world took part in Neurodiversity Celebration Week in 2020. Sienna also won the 2018 Teen Hero BBC Radio 1 Award for her inspiring work. I am thrilled to have her on the podcast to discuss the importance of understanding how people think and learn differently. Thank you very much, Sienna, for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm really
0: happy to be here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. You're such an inspiring young woman and I've really enjoyed following your work. Your book is absolutely wonderful. I mean, it's a very informative, you sharing your personal experience and your journey. It's written as truly a guidebook with every chapter having very clear titles for somebody to just dig into the portion that they are most interested in. Everything from embracing who you are, the importance of being yourself, which was a very interesting chapter, taking care of your body, bullying, dating, and, uh, and something that I thought was really great for anyone to really read is the co-occurring conditions where you really go through different things such as dyslexia, anxiety, and what that means because so often we don't really understand what they actually mean. Reading your book, it's very clearly written for autistic teenage girls really it also opens your eyes to how someone else experiences the world in a much greater detail and much more personally than I've ever actually heard anyone talking about their personal experience of their difference in any kind of way. So that was absolutely beautiful. So can you please tell me what prompted you to write the book?
1: Yeah, so I was really struck through my advocacy that I've done prior to writing the book. How little people were talking about neurodiversity in general, but autistic women in particular. Autistic women are a group that don't really have a place within the neurodiversity movement because a lot of people see them as outliers, anomalies. They say, oh, autism is a male condition. There are a few women, but you know we don't really need to create resources because they're such a minority. And so I would go online to try to find support and all I could find was advice for autistic men. And because women are socialized differently and autism is a social communication and interaction disorder, we present differently. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, from a very young age, I had people commenting on the way I behaved, mainly because I was a woman. People would say to me, oh, why aren't you smiling? Why aren't you making friends? I only wore one outfit because I had a sensory processing disorder. If I were a boy, I think I could have gotten away with that. But because I was a girl, I was expected to really take an interest in my clothes and have a variety of dresses that I wear. And so, so many people would comment on it that it got to a point where I ended up conforming to the way that they expected me to present. And through that, I lost a lot of my natural autistic traits and so when I would read books and articles written for autistic men I no longer present it that way because of the way I'd kind of been shamed out of those depictions kind of, of my autism and so I really wanted to create a guide designed for autistic women and I wasn't shocked <laughs> I was kind of Kind of expected it, but nonetheless, I was a bit horrified that the book that I wrote, *The Spectrum Girl Survival Guide*, it's the first book written for autistic girls by an autistic girl. That's amazing. And in this day and age, that should have happened a lot earlier. You know, there are statistics coming from the U.S. that are saying that five percent of the population are autistic. The mm. condition that that's, that is that common, there should have been somebody who wrote a book for autistic girls who is
0: autistic girls before. Absolutely. And, and you said that a lot of the material you were reading was not only written by men, but it was written by men who were not autistic. So this type of personal experience and how you experience the world, it was really difficult to find that, which, yeah, it's, it's incredible why that didn't exist already. I mean, you have such a positive attitude and approach to the fact that your brain works differently. And in a world where everyone is trying to, although we say we appreciate differences, You've mentioned many times as well that there's this conformity, this pressure to conform. I loved your quote from the book where you say, never be ashamed of being different. It is this different that makes you extraordinary and unique. I view my autism as a strength and advantage, a modern day superpower. Our brains are wired differently, which means we all see the world differently. I think that's absolutely beautiful. And so can you please tell me about your superpower? Explain that.
1: Yeah. So for me, you know, when I was first diagnosed as autistic, I just heard a lot of the negatives. Same for all my learning differences. I remember with dyslexia for years, I was just told it's spelling and um, it's your reading and those are going to be kind of awful. And that's it. That's what dyslexia is. At no point did anyone say to me, you know what, 36 percent of entrepreneurs in the UK are dyslexic. Mm-hmm. Um, to have this incredible creativity. That wasn't yeah. explained to me. There was just this fixation on negatives. And through my neurodiversity advocacy, I started kind of realizing that a lot of kind of the cornerstones of my personality and my identity were coming from my neurodiversities. For instance, you know, my creativity, that's coming from my dyslexia and my ADHD. My greatest passion, which is my math and my physics, that came all from the autism side of things. I'm able to do these math problems mainly because of my logical way of thinking Mm -hmm. and also through the way that I'm able to visualize everything because of my autism. And so there are so many strengths that come with it. It was a real revelation to start kind of identifying all of these attributes that I have that I considered incredibly positive that I was very proud of and realizing that they were all coming from my neurodiversity, that my neurodiversity was a superpower and not a problem that everyone made out that it was.
0: Yeah, I love that. Exactly. I think that is just so incredibly important and inspiring to hear someone, especially someone so young, say that and to and to make that very clear and to think that way. Because that's exactly it. It's, it's not something to be fixed. It's something to understand and something to embrace all the positive aspects and, and work with the accommodations that are important. But I think that's important for a lot of people to understand. Even if they're not autistic or dyslexic, uh, there might be something that actually is quite challenging for them. And your quote is just absolutely brilliant because I think it's such an important thing to look at. Well, actually, maybe it's allowing me positives in some way and then let me actually think how can I make the challenges easier and work around it? What kind of reactions do you get when you say this to people? Yes.
1: A lot of people kind of disagree with me. In general, I think that I really value the approach I have and it's something that I haven't always had. Um, there was a time when I was very fixated on this idea and, and the school system drills it into you you identify your weaknesses, and you spend all of your time trying to fix those. Hmm. And so, you know, an example would be I'm dyspraxic. I'm really bad at sport. I spent a lot of my time focusing on the sport side of things, focusing on being able to catch a ball, being able to run, really dedicating a lot of time to fixing that. With my dyslexia, a lot of time to the spelling side of things. Um, trying to to dwell on my spelling tests, which was a losing battle completely. Um, that was what really people pushed me to do. And when you're spending all your time working on things that you know you're not naturally good at, it really affects your self-esteem because you don't see that progress. So that's what people expected of me. But I reached a certain point where I decided this is accomplishing nothing what I'm going to do is I'm going to identify all of my strengths and I'm going to work on my strengths and so to this day I can't catch a ball I can't run I um I struggle to tie my laces at times but I don't care that's not important to me I'm always going to be I'm not going to be an athletic person but I don't really want to be I want to be a physicist and I don't my time i redirected it from all these weaknesses to the strengths and you know now i'm going to stanford to study mechanical engineering congratulations that's wonderful that would not happen if i were still doing my spelling and my all of that so that's something that i really advocate for and a lot of people disagree with that they think no identify your weaknesses and focus on that but i just think that's not it's not Good for progress, but it's also not good for your mental health, you know, because it really does help your self-esteem when you see progress. And I see progress when I'm working on something I'm good at.
0: Absolutely. And and I think maybe sometimes people might interpret what you're saying as not really working hard at what you're not good at, but that's not at all what you're saying. You've said many times you work extremely hard. But I think you're you're absolutely right that every person has natural inclinations and natural talents towards certain things and trying to really force something different, maybe it's just not important. I mean, that, that could apply to someone who's very inclined towards the arts and is being pushed to go into STEM subjects. Yes, you work hard at your maths, your, your science, but you, know, you also have to say, you know what, I'm going to dedicate my time to where my inclinations are. So I think that's just absolutely a, a wonderful, wonderful attitude and such an important message and big congratulations for going to Stanford for engineering. That's wonderful. So you have faced a lot of challenges growing up, and you speak about these really beautifully. Often you say you, that you felt that you didn't fit in, and so you discuss your experiences in primary school. I thought this was very interesting, that you felt like a very different person at school and at home, and and that you liked your the way the person you were at home, and you tried to bring that out into the other parts of your life. So can you discuss what was the reason that you felt these different environments brought out a very different personality in you at that point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that at the time, I didn't know I had a sensory processing disorder. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a name to it, but I did have this general idea that I get anxiety in certain situations and in others I'm fine. So at home, when, you know, My mother was very accepting. Uh, She knew, she didn't know that I was autistic, like she didn't have a name for it, but she knew that I was different and I had my eccentricities and she really helped me out with that. And so we had dimmed lights at home. She put a dimmer on all the light switches so that the lights wouldn't overwhelm me. And everyone always had to use their indoor voices because of loud noises. And so at home, I was very comfortable. I was very safe. I felt like, you know, at no point am I going to get overwhelmed from a sensory perspective. Whereas at school, you know, that was not the case, especially when you're younger. And there's this idea of, you know, people running around in the playground and throwing balls and being rowdy. That's an environment where it's very unpredictable, just by nature, by having all these young children. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also just, an environment where I didn't feel listened to. If I went to a teacher and I said, oh, I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed because of the lights, I would have been told that I was told that I was a drama queen, that I was starting problems, that I was an attention seeker. Whereas at home, if I told my mom the lights are too bright, she'd just dim them. And so it meant that at home in this safe place, I was able to be myself. I was able to communicate. Um, I was able to take part in the conversations that my family were having. Whereas at school, I would get close to being selectively new, there were times when I just couldn't talk to anybody, times when I couldn't engage, times when I was hiding in the library, but I didn't really identify the reasons to why that was. I just felt like, will I get overwhelmed at home? I'm
0: Okay. Absolutely. And that's the thing of developing your self-understanding and understanding how you react to different things and why. And of course, you were very young. I mean, you're still young. So many people, it takes them, you know, half their life to figure out exactly why they react to certain things a certain way. But you were speaking even about things like your uniform, about Keeping your shirt, the top button, buttoned, why that was such a problem. People having a hard time understanding that actually you have extremely sensitive sensitivity. Everyone had to wear their uniform a certain way. Understanding that and communicating it made school a lot better later on, didn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at a certain point, people started listening to me more. Um, School, when you're younger, I mean, I'm still struck by how little independence you have you know you need to ask for everything like you can't even you know leave the room on your own you need to ask to go to the bathroom ask for permission and so it was a very difficult scenario because I didn't have all the coping, coping mechanisms that I have now but then when I reached 16 17 you know in the UK you're kind of considered an adult at 16 and so I was allowed to just leave school if I wanted to if things got really overwhelming, I could definitely just leave the classroom. And sometimes just knowing that you're able to do that can calm your anxiety down. Because there are times when I've had panic attacks, just thinking about what it would look like to have a panic attack in front of 30 people. Um, But when you know, okay, this can only get so bad, because if it does reach that point, I'm just gonna step outside and have a private space where I can have my moment and then come back. But when it's like, okay, (laughs) <laughs> this goes down. It's so over the whole class, that needs a lot of... Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, just, I still remember those moments where it's just pure terror.
0: Well, it's it's a very hard, hard to navigate those situations. But you speak so beautifully about your mother, you just mentioned it as well previously, that she really understood you long before you actually had any label to put on why you were feeling this the ways you were feeling. She understood you and found accommodations to make your life easier so that you can shine. I think that this is such an important thing for both parents and teachers in order to really pay attention to the individuality of of a child so that you can create a suitable learning situation where they can flourish and they can work hard. So what did your mother see and understand about these early stages in your life? And what ways did she try to help you? I
1: think that with my mom, she's very open-minded, but she's also a problem solver. And so it was the kind of thing where I would get anxiety over something. And she would be like, okay, why are you getting this anxiety? Okay, well, let's just fix that. Let's stop that from happening. And then that's not going to happen again. And then you're not going to get anxiety over it. It was just this problem solving behavior. Whereas at school, it's shaming. It's not, okay, so this causes you anxiety. Well, let's not do this thing anymore. Instead, it's why does this cause you anxiety? Why are you different? Why are you having a problem? Everyone else is fine with it. Why are you attention seeking? Why are you being the drama queen? Why are you being difficult? And so it's the two mindsets. One is very productive. One accomplishes things. One helps someone's mental health, their self-esteem. It's having a good mindset, and the other one really breaks someone down, and means that you know, for a lot of my school career, I was afraid to go into school. Um, And so I think that people just need to adopt more supportive, problem-solving approach.
0: Oh, I love that. I really, that 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 way of describing it, that it's a problem-solving mindset that your mother had, not a conformist mindset of this is the way it has to look and be. Because she paid attention to the essence of how to accomplish your goals and finding the right way of doing it. I really liked the example of the fact that you were in a school play and you had to be a, a panther. She didn't just say, okay, well, that's a problem. So you know what? Don't be in the school play. It's this type of problem-solving approach that I, that I understand from reading about you is that she had this problem-solving approach. Okay, let's put in the supports so that you can shine. So she hired an acting coach. You worked tirelessly. So can you just give a little example about that tiger situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was like, sometimes I look back and I just laugh at my school experience. Okay. <laughs> constant. And drama? Well, here, I had this play, and I was, I think it was like a panther, it was the Jungle Book, and I was Bugira. And I was made to get into this, like, fluffy polyester onesie, and then there were these really bright stage lights that made everything really hot, and it was a sensory nightmare. I had all this kind of anxiety around it, and then on top of it, I had this acting... Uh, this drama teacher who was telling me that I needed to crawl like a panther and I needed to behave like a panther and I needed to have this like slinky kind of fluid movement which when you're dyspraxic is really hard to do because I can't even walk fluidly um and then also when you're autistic and you're overwhelmed by everything it's also really difficult to do but she just saw kind of how horrible I was at this role and she decided to um Tell the headmistress that I was purposely trying to ruin the play. It mm. was the only reason someone could be as bad as I was, as if I was doing it on purpose. Mm. And so there was this long conversation about how I was going to be banned from the play i was going to be the one person in my class who was banned from the play oh, um, that's true but then yeah my mom came in and she was very supportive and she got me an acting coach she was like we're going to do this we're, you're not going to be the one person who's isolated from this we're going to make it happen and so she really believed in me right i had the most subpar performance as bagheera but she was so proud of me she was front row she came with her flowers.
0: <laughs> like, you so amazing oh so lovely <laughs> No,
1: I, I still see that, that video, at least they recorded it. I just hope that if I ever become, you know, a really well-known advocate that never gets out, i just looking to find out that online. I,
0: I love that. I mean, I love the fact that she didn't take you out of it. She provided the supports for you with an acting coach by discussing it so that you can do the best that you can. And that is just absolutely wonderful. As a teenage girl, you spoke a little bit about the the particular challenges of not actually having material for you to read and understand about this. But as a teenage girl, it is particularly uh, challenging being autistic and fitting in with your peers. But even more so, and you speak a lot about that, but even more so as a teenage girl, culture of teenage girls is really based in social cues and innuendos and things that are not explicit which is challenging for someone who's autistic. Can you speak about what that experience was like? Because I think it's hard to understand the specific challenges that that come with a teenage girl culture and being autistic.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really
0: kind of struggled at school
1: because people saw me as different and as weird, and I didn't really fit into any category. I would spend time with girls they just seem to have their own kind of club and have these all like have inside jokes and just know things that I have no idea about I mean I still don't because I'm someone who I'm very in everything I do I'm kind of different in some way I have this ability to just my mother makes fun of me for it all the time but I always had like really unique music tastes. Even at school, you know, I was the one girl who wanted to do math and physics. And so whenever I would try to join their friendship group and talk to them about things, they were talking about like artists that I had I had never heard of, TV shows that I didn't watch because I would watch these um I would watch documentaries. I was obsessed with David Attenborough. And okay. if you kind talk to people about that, they have no interest. Mm. Um, but it was something that I really struggled with. And so there was a time where I just decided to mask throughout. And so I learned about everything that they were interested in. And I tried to mimic their behavior and try to fit in that way. And I would try so hard that I thought, okay, got to, I've got to kind of conform at this point, the amount of effort I'm putting into it. Mm. But the thing is, they could see that I was putting effort into it but it wasn't coming naturally like it was to everybody else. And so that was another way that it just set me aside and made me different. So it was a very challenging situation
0: to navigate. You wrote in the book about the fact that as a teenage girl, you see the popular girl and you see her hair in a certain way or a certain backpack and you think, well, that's how I should be. uh, Not necessarily realizing that that actually has different underlying tones in teen girl culture. You're being trying too hard or it's interpreted in a different way than that it would seem to have been a really difficult to understand these not clear social cues that are part of that culture.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, like 10, 11,
0: it was, it was difficult. Mm. Um,
1: I would do things like, I remember one person told this joke that everyone thought was really funny. And so I decided that I was just going to retell that joke and that it would have the same effect. But I would tell it to the same group of people, and like nobody would laugh if they knew they'd already heard the joke before. They knew that I was like repeating it, and I just didn't understand that because in in my brain, like like just the logic was, okay, this like kind of story, this sequence of words is funny, and it will make people laugh. So it doesn't matter if this person says it or I say it, or how many times it's said. This is just considered funny, and so. I was really confused by that. And I would also, yeah, I would just, I would copy people because I would mask off with people. I would find behavior that other people kind of were drawn to and then I'd try to copy it. And sometimes Mm. that was just in buying the exact same backpack that someone else had. But you can't do that because that scene is like, oh, you're kind of copying my style here. (laughs) And I just didn't understand that. And nobody was really able to explain it to me. Until years later, just from experience um, and from being around this kind of crowd for the time that I was, I kind of figured it out. And now I look back and think, I can't believe that I ever thought that telling the same joke in front of the same group of people was going to go over well.
0: Well, that's, I mean, that's such a good example of seeing that different people's minds work differently. And something that is obvious to one person or an entire group of people is not necessarily obvious to someone else. I think that's such a good thing to to keep in mind. You speak about how you try to integrate into school norms and and cultural norms. Uh, One of the examples was things like shaking someone's hand and making eye contact. And that in primary school, they were trying to teach you good behaviors to shake hands and look into someone's eye. That's something that really causes you a lot of anxiety. So how did you navigate this world of fitting in with some social norms and learning to do that in, in a way that is still comfortable for you?
1: I mean, I think that it was a lot of, like my comfort kind of took a back seat. It was a lot of people forcing me to do things. It wasn't really a decision on my part. So with the shaking hands, I went to a school where to enter the front door, you had to look the headmistress in the eye and shake her hands and say, good morning. And so I just had to do that. And I would hold up the whole line, but it was something that if I wanted to enter the building, like had to be done. And so two years of doing that meant that I can now make eye contact and shake someone's hand. And then it was just things like, I remember um, I was in the playground one day and parents were kind of coming in to pick their children up. And this man came up to me and said, why aren't you smiling? Which looking back, I had self-esteem issues for years because of that. Because I thought, oh my God, I behaved so differently. This person came up to me. Now my mindset is switched, And I'm like, who does that? Like what kind of 50-year-old man comes up to some seven-year-old who's just exactly. living their
0: life at some point so rude. It is, it um, is.
1: But it's things like that where I had to make this decision between, okay, do I want to go through the discomfort of masking, conforming, doing a behavior that isn't comfortable for me, mm-hmm. or be stigmatized and shamed for behaving the way I naturally do? And so a lot of the time it was just, you've got to mask to survive in mainstream education and then now it's just been so ingrained that I do it naturally it's not even masking anymore it's just my way of communication like I can make eye contact sometimes it causes me anxiety most of the time I can make eye contact easily um, just because of the years that I had to go through when it was difficult but I wish that
0: people
1: have just left me alone. I, I I still am horrified by the people who would just come up and comment on my behavior. Like that's just that's just so, I don't
0: know. Yes, that is unbelievable, isn't it? You said previously that you actually learn to look people on their foreheads because it looks like you're looking them in the eye to find these kind of different ways of accomplishing the same thing. As you said, you have to find a balance of how much conforming is really important and at which point do you say, actually, this is, this is who I am. So do you feel like you've kind of found that balance for yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's kind of been pushed into that where now I have all this natural masking Let's just become my standard behavior that I can't really undo to go back to the way I was before because it's been so ingrained. But I do embrace my certain autistic elements that have remained like you know, I just don't like social situations and that's fine like I'm not going to force myself to go into I don't know people my age really like going to these crowded restaurants and crowded department stores yes. that's just like I completely embrace that that's not my thing like you can find me in the library and you can find me in my office and that's it like I'm not going there I've appreciated that as I've gotten older and learned more about my autism, I've started setting more boundaries. And that's something I'm not afraid to do anymore and something that you just need to do to protect your sanity. Like we live in a world where it's designed for neurotypicals and neurodivergence kind of afterthought. And so creating your own space that is designed for you and your neurodiversity is really important.
0: Well, you are far beyond your years because often it's university where people start figuring out where to put their boundaries and actually what they're not happy doing that they should just be okay saying I'm not happy doing that. You're far beyond your years and very wise. So you have spoken about the dangers of having labels in our world and to the point where it might actually even impede medical diagnosis. So can you talk about how are labels damaging and how should we be thinking differently about this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that
0: right now we kind
1: of have this medical model of disability where people diagnose you. I mean, for me, I was diagnosed with my neurodiversity, and they're like, okay, so this means this. And there was also this idea of, you know, this isn't going to improve, you're always going to have these challenges, we're not really going to offer you any support. There was no kind of, well, let's look at you as an individual, Let's look at the unique challenges that your neurodiversities give you. So for instance, for me, uh, with my dyslexia, I have stealth dyslexia or mild dyslexia, which means that I can actually read just fine. It's my spelling that's a problem. And so for years, this label of dyslexia meant that everyone was critiquing my reading and assuming that reading was a problem. I went to schools where the Senko would give me overlays automatically, Um, and she would say, okay, this will will solve the problem that you're having with your dyslexia, this purple overlay. And there was no, well, let's look at you as a person. Let's look beyond the label of dyslexia and let's see how it affects you. Oh, your reading's fine. Okay, then you don't need an overlay. You need spell check. You need this instead. And especially with my autism, that was something that really made my time very difficult. Because people had this perception of what autism looked like, and they were so fixed into that that when they heard, "Oh, you have this label of autism," they just had this idea of how I was going to present. It was always very different to the way I presented. I had one teacher who assumed that I couldn't write notes because I was autistic. I I still don't understand the logic of that. But just you know, also with with sensory processing disorders, there are a lot of teachers. Um, for me, I have a pretty typical sensory processing disorder. I'm just hypersensitive to everything. For my sister, though, she's also autistic and she's undersensitive. And teachers are constantly trying to give her reasonable adjustments where they put her in quiet rooms and they don't give her all these kind of sensory problems, which would be amazing for me, but she doesn't need them is the kind of person where she has no sense of smell, her hearing is actually um, pretty limited. And so they're telling her like, oh, we're not gonna put you in the sounding door. And she's like, but that doesn't bother me in any way. I need this other reasonable adjustment. This other reasonable adjustment is really gonna benefit me. It's really gonna make me able to take part in the school community and do all of this. But they just think, oh, but that's not the way I think of autism. And so I think that we really need to start stepping away more from this medical model, this label kind of approach, and instead start treating people as individuals with their own characteristics, their own ways of presenting, and their own needs.
0: And having an open dialogue about individuals saying about how they're experiencing something, and also others asking, being open to that discussion. It's such an important thing, isn't it? I mean, your mother is such a good example of someone who paid attention. D- did she ask you how, she, how you were experiencing something and trying to understand it?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of trying to unpick things. And I think that in the school environment, you're expected to kind of have all of the answers. And teachers kind of, they had this idea of, I would come to them with a reasonable adjustment. And they would think, well, why do you need this now? Why didn't you need it earlier? And it was because I was just kind of discovering things. So for instance, I was in a class where I couldn't see the whiteboard. Like the whiteboard wasn't straight on, it was kind of to an angle. And I really struggled to read the board and I didn't quite understand it. I thought it might've been the way the light was hitting the board and it was my autism. Four months into that class, I figured out that actually, even though with my dyslexia, I can read well, I can only read head on at an angle I really struggle. And so I went in to tell them, this is something I'm struggling with. And there was just this idea of, well, no, dyslexia is fixed. The reasonable adjustments that you asked for at the beginning are reasonable adjustments you should need now. How did this thing change? And there's no understanding of, well, especially when you're in school, when you've just been diagnosed with something, there's new discoveries that you make. There are realizations where it's like, actually, this is my dyslexia. I thought this was my autism. I thought it was my sensory processing disorder, but no, it's this. And I think that people need to be more accepting and open to a lot of the discovery. Like it's not like the day you get you get your dyslexia diagnosis, you all of a sudden know what a place that it impacts your life. It can take years. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and l-
0: people and life is not black and white. So so having that kind of discussion is really an open-mindedness is important. And to the point, being sticking to these types of labels actually inhibits diagnosis as well. Can you talk a little bit about how that might be impacting the fact that girls are far less likely to be diagnosed properly than boys.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that with autism in particular, ADHD to a lesser extent, people present very differently. I mean, with dyslexia, if you might have 100 people who are dyslexic, they're all going to kind of say the same thing, which is spelling and reading. Mm. Those are are the two things that they're really going to be talking about. Whereas with autism, you can get very different experiences because of the spectrum that it's on. And so a lot of people will meet one person on that spectrum or hear one person who fits somewhere, has their own combination of strengths and challenges, and they will think that that person represents everybody who's autistic. And so for me, some stereotypes I play into, like the STEM one, where people assume, oh, people who are autistic are good at math and physics. I have some friends who are autistic who aren't good at math and physics, they're good at history, and that's something that really bothers them, the idea that they're always expected to to do the math when they have to split the bill at a restaurant when they're with their friends. <laughs> so that's something that I'm fine with because I fit into that stereotype. But that's kind of the only stereotype I fit into. A lot of people, their person on the spectrum, who they think represents everybody is like Sheldon from the Big Bang, Ray Man. For my mom, that was... That was the exception she had. So She knew that I presented differently. She knew that I had this sensory processing disorder. She knew that I had problems in my social communication, but she never thought it could be autism because I don't present the way Sheldon does. I don't present the way Rayman right did. Yeah. And so it's really broadening our understanding and also getting more representation in media. I think that if there had been somebody who presented the way I did, who was well-known in... I don't know, in some TV show or even just, you know, someone like 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 Temple Grandin. Um, mm. if more people knew about her, um, I think that I would have been diagnosed a lot earlier. It's just that a lot of women don't present the way that people typically think autistic individuals
0: act. Right. No, that is important and you're doing an absolutely amazing job at putting so much out there and putting yourself out there to be that representation and to to show others that this is the way you are and maybe they they find similarities and that is such an important thing and another problem with labels and i love the way you spoke about this is that it can put things into very black and white terms and into good and bad terms so something is a positive something else is a negative you say that although neurotypical and autistic brains are different, they are not better and worse. They are just different. And at one point you even said, you say, well, maybe nature d- just designed them to be different. And this is really a fantastic message, being able to recognize the talents of someone else and not to label something as this is better and that is worse is so important. So what do you hope that people understand better in order for them to be able to see that one is not better than the other.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's just, it's a different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. So right now our school system is set up to stigmatize individuals who are neurodiverse, to make their experience difficult. If we restructured the school system and made it about being creative, being an outside the box thinker, having that 3D spatial awareness, it would be neurotypicals who would need the extra time, neurotypicals who would be struggling. A lot of the reasons why one why people think that one brain is better than the other is because one does better in the given school environment or in social life. But if we restructured our social dynamics and made it more logical, got rid of a lot of the conventions, I think autistic people would actually do better. I've been on a lot of calls where I get on and, and I'm, I'm with you know another autistic individual and there's no small talk, there's no kind of rambling about nothing. It's just <laughs> straight to, okay, how are we gonna solve this problem? And it's a call that I've allotted an hour to and we get done in 15 minutes. Depending on what we tested on, show one and the other, but it's just because they're different, different ways of thinking. And I think that people need to start fixating on how our current climate is, our current school environment, our current social life, and fixating on how people doing in those environments instead recognizing talents as talents and strengths as strengths. And that's something that I want to start moving more towards. And, and when I, I do a lot of um, for my work, I do a lot of like posters and a lot of articles about neurodiverse individuals. And when you read stories of like Richard Bramson, he dropped out of school, he really struggled at school. But look at how successful he is how he did a tool what isn't an indication of what he's capable of isn't an indication of how well
0: his brain works
1: it just shows that it's also the design. Um, we all have our own strengths and talents
0: absolutely i mean that is such a perfect example of that and recognizing these differences and also that really brings to mind the fact that thinking about what we test And this is certainly a big discussion in education, and you've highlighted so many of the important aspects of that. When we look at tests and we look at the environment and how we judge students in it, we really need to think, well, why are we testing for that? And what exactly does this type of test actually test for? So to really think through what are we testing for and why are we doing that is is such an important thing because, as you said, In the certain conditions, certain people shine. In other conditions, other types of people shine. And Mm -hmm. it might actually be exactly the same end goal, but you've created an environment in which some people shine and some others don't. You have created the Neurodiversity Celebration Week, which is absolutely fantastic. And it does just this, to bring awareness. And I love the fact that celebration is in it because you are celebrating differences and different talents. So can you tell me what happens in Neurodiversity Celebration Week?
1: So Neurodiversity Celebration Week is a week designed to flip the narrative and focus on the positives of neurodiversity instead of the negatives. And so in schools, teachers can do assemblies. I have posters on my website that they can put up around the school. And the whole point is just to empower neurodiverse students and to show them all the strengths and benefits of their different way of thinking.
0: That is amazing. And I mean, as I say in the introduction, 760 schools around the world have taken part just last year. So this is really, really, really taken off. What kind of feedback have you received from people?
1: I've had a lot of people who have told me that it's really had an impact, that it's changed the way that they perceive themselves. Um, you know I had one boy from Australia who he sent me a message that was very powerful and he talked about how his teachers would always tell him that because of his ADHD he was never going to be able to succeed in the workforce you can't sit still for five minutes in class how are you going to work in an office and then through Neurodiversity Celebration Week and learning about all these people like Justin Timberlake and Watson, Justin Bieber, all these people who are attributing their success to their neurodiversity to their, access to their ADHD, he started learning about how it could be a strength and it could cause them to succeed instead of cause them to
0: be unemployed. Absolutely. That is absolutely wonderful. And in the show notes, there's links to, to your website and neurodiversity celebration week. And you do a brilliant job on Twitter, also always promoting it. So people should definitely take a look and get involved. And do they need to get in touch with you? Or how does a school get involved? So
1: they can go onto my website, mm-hmm. and um, the neurodiversity-celebration-week.com. And they can sign up for my website
0: okay, and then they will get information once they sign up. Perfect. And there's lots of great information on your website also for people to read. That's something to take a look at. So you have done so much in terms of your own self-understanding and growth, and also in helping others, writing a book, creating this incredible neurodiversity celebration week that has really taken off internationally. I mean, your accomplishments just go on and on and won many awards. So you shared a little bit about you going off to university. So tell me what is next for you and what kind of projects do you have on the horizon?
1: Yeah, so I have going to university, which is going to be a big step for me. Currently I'm on a gap year. So I'm going to be going to a new continent because I'm based in the UK and so I'll be going to the US. That's something that I'm really preparing myself for mentally because it's going to be a big change in routine. But I'm also just continuing my neurodiversity work, focusing on promoting my two books, The Spectrum Girl Survival Guide, How to Grab Awesome and Autistic, and then my latest book, um, The Spectrum Girl Survival Workbook. It's a toolkit that I created that um, is complementary to The Spectrum Girl Survival Guide. And so I'm really excited that that's now out there. And I'm also doing a mentoring project. I have part-time work with Genius Within, and we're getting a group of autistic mentors, to mentor and support a group of autistic mentees, and I think that it's a really, I think it be a really great program. We've just have our list of mentors now, and we're putting them through training so that then they can start their mentoring. But I think that it's going to have a really big impact because within the autistic community, there's a lot of understanding for what people go through. If I tell another autistic person, hey, I've been to 11 schools, I've been bullied nonstop. They just say, well, well done for getting through that. I completely understand why you went through that because the mainstream education is awful for autistic individuals. But if you tell a neurotypical, oh, I went to 11 schools and I got bullied everywhere I went. I I got a lot of what's wrong with you. Mm. At a certain point, it's your fault. At a certain point, you're the common denominator. You need to change your behavior. And that was something that a lot of kind of mentors that I had gave me that advice because they felt like I needed that kind of tough love. I just needed to be told that that maybe it was me. And they thought that by telling me that, maybe I could change whatever behavior I had and stop me from being bullied, mm. but that's not helpful. And so I think it's really important to have, you know, autistic individuals being mentored by people who understand their experience, understand what they've gone through and can give them life advice and that's kind of the premise that my book was written on this kind of I've been through it I've learned it the hard way let me give you the tips that helped me succeed
0: absolutely
1: building a mentoring project off
0: that that's amazing oh my goodness well that that is a lot it's absolutely incredible all the things that you are doing and that you've done and uh, that's a huge contribution to the world as well so before we end I always like to ask if you have a recommendation for someone? And first of all, your two books are my recommendation because they're absolutely brilliant. But is there something that you found inspiring and helpful that you would like to share with others?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of work with Genius Within and they're an organization that really inspire me. They have a very positive outlook towards neurodiversity. They're very supportive very focused around helping neurodiverse individuals succeed. And that's something that I think is very powerful in an organization because there are a lot of organizations that just focus on the negatives of neurodiversity, a lot of the focus on, especially with autism, trying to identify what causes autism so they can cure it. And so having these organizations that are designed for us, that listen to us, that put out resources that benefit us. Another organization that does that is Cray. Um, Center for Research in Autism and Education at UCL and they do these incredible research projects that have really helped me understand my autism, helped me understand why I'm the way I am and when you read these these research
0: papers you just
1: like, oh, I really learned something new about myself and so I love keeping up with what they're doing.
0: That's wonderful. So one is Genius Women and then Cray. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Sienna, I mean, it is absolutely a pleasure to speak to you. You're just such an inspiring individual, and you have done so many incredible things, and you're only 18, so truly an inspiring person and really lovely to speak to. So thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to get to know you.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed this conversation that we've had.
0: Thank you, and best of luck at Stanford next year.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really, really looking forward to
0: it.